Friday, November 22nd. It all began so beautifully. After a drizzle in the morning, the sun came out bright and beautiful. We were going into Dallas. Inside a dimly lit exhibit space at the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, a motion sensor triggers a recording. A soft, deliberate voice fills the room. In the lead car, President Mrs. Kennedy, and then a Secret Service car full of men, and then our car, Clinton and me. It's the voice of Lady Bird Johnson, the wife of Lyndon Johnson. Mrs. Kennedy's dress was stained with blood. That immaculate woman. I was so struck by that voice and the details she managed to capture. Exquisitely dressed and caked in blood, I asked her if I couldn't get somebody to come in to help her change. She says, oh no, that's all right, perhaps later. And then with an element of fierceness, she said, I want them to see what they have done to Jack. I'm Julia Swig. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for a while, working in policy and writing about history. D.C. is kind of a company town, and that company is focused mostly on power and influence. You can't live and work here, well, I can't, and not think about how women fit into it all, and often how they don't. Now, there have certainly been some powerful women in Washington, including first ladies. We know a lot about Eleanor and Jackie, less about Betty and Barbara. We see what Hillary and Michelle did and what they couldn't do. But Lady Bird Johnson, much more two-dimensional. She's the picture of the quaffed first lady, and as history tells the story, just a president's wife best known for a program called beautification. Really, what could be more benign than planting flowers? Given what else was going on in America in the mid-60s, civil rights, protests, riots, and war, it doesn't sound all that urgent. Give me Ms. Johnson right quick. Yes, Mr. President. Yes, dear. Would you like to take a walk with me in the press? Uh, all right, I'm on long distance, but I'll get off and come right over. So after that day at the LBJ Library, I decided to dig deeper. Turns out, Lady Bird recorded her entire experience in the White House, hours and hours of tape that almost no one has ever heard. But those tapes, they end up rewriting history. I wrote out for Lyndon about a nine-page analysis of what I thought his situation was. This is a story about a political partnership, one that somehow doesn't show up in the many, many accounts of LBJ's presidency. During the statement, you were a little breathless. And it was too much looking down, and I think it was a little too fast. How do you feel about it? I thought it was much better than last week. A partnership she recorded as she and Lyndon try to navigate the turmoil of the 1960s. Most of them carried signs that said, Lady Bird, beautify Vietnam. The marchers are now backed up over the bridge. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, James Farmer. Lyndon reaches out to me more than ever. And yet, I do not have the wisdom. As for that thing she's best remembered for, that program they called beautification. I think you also know what lies beneath that rather inadequate word. It goes a whole lot deeper than we ever knew. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, 
this is In Plain Sight. This season, I'm looking at the untold story of Lady Bird Johnson, a canny political operator, an activist, and a woman who figured out how to navigate that company town. She's one of the most influential members of the Johnson administration, even if we never knew it. is episode one, 14 Days. You have seen some Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy and their official party began their Texas tour yesterday morning when they departed Washington. From there, they have visited Houston, San Antonio, then on to Fort Worth, where they spent last night. The 1964 election is still a year away. President John F. Kennedy, Boston Brahmin, Harvard grad, young, glamorous member of the Northeast elite, needs Texas and its 25 electoral votes if he's gonna get a second term. The entire state is in a condition of upheaval right now, and it boils down to a matter of liberal versus conservative within the party itself. Mr. Kennedy made some mention of that last night in Houston when he took a verbal swipe at the warring factions of the party. The Republicans have been making inroads across the Lone Star State, which has been run by New Deal Democrats since the Roosevelt days. And Dallas and its suburbs are probably the most conservative districts in the state. For Dallas, Kennedy is way too liberal, too cosmopolitan, and weirdly Catholic. And the more Lyndon Johnson becomes a national politician, not just a Texan, the less cachet he has at home. If Johnson can't actually deliver Texas in 64, he brings a lot less value to JFK. Right now, the eyes of Texas and the nation are focused on Dallas. And this is the heart of a real political tempest. There's open speculation that JFK might drop him from the ticket, pick a new VP. So this trip to Texas is tense, and the stakes are high for everybody. LBJ wasn't consulted much about the trip, but the Johnsons would host the Kennedys for a dinner and an overnight stay at their ranch in the hill country. Given their tenuous position, they go all out. They had the walls of their bedrooms torn up to install secure phone lines. They brought in a bed with a hard horsehair mattress for the president with the famously bad back. They stocked Jackie's bathroom with special soap and perfume, instructed the staff to pour champagne on the rocks the way she liked it. It's Jackie's first time in Texas, her first appearance on the campaign trail since yet another miscarriage. A son, Patrick, had been born prematurely that August and died after just a few days. She'd come along reluctantly. The kitchen staff at the ranch were in a flurry of preparation. 20 pecan pies, 18 loaves of bread, a barbecue. There'd be a sheepdog act, the evening's entertainment. This was what was waiting for the Johnsons and the Kennedys on that Friday night. But in the meantime, they all had a day of politicking and public events ahead of them. Peered off beautifully at Love Field. Out here earlier this morning, the weather was a problem because it was raining off and on, scattered showers. Now Air Force number one taxiing in. Doors of the big bird swing open. There's Mrs. Kennedy, and the crowd yells, and the President of the United States. And I can see his suntan all the way from here. Mrs. Kennedy gave a lovely smile and a wave at that time. Secret Service men all around. Boy, this is something. 
Then comes the Vice President and Mrs. Johnson, Senator Yarborough. The streets were lined with people, placards, confetti, people waving from windows. Thousands of people flash madly to get another view of the President as he and his First Lady depart Love Field. It's midday. JFK and Jackie, the Johnsons, and Governor Connolly and his wife Nellie are on their way to the Dallas Trademark, another fundraiser. The main route of travel will be west on Main to Houston, then through the Triple Underpass to Simmons Freeway, and on to the Trademark. Then almost at the edge of town, we were rounding a curve, going down a hill. Suddenly, there was a sharp, loud report, a shot. But... I have to stop here for a second. This account you've been hearing is from Lady Bird's first ever diary entry. She recorded it eight days after the assassination. Despite everything that was going on at that moment, the grief and exhaustion, the shock to find herself suddenly the first lady, somehow she brings all the details together. It seemed to me to come from the right above my shoulder from a building. Things are rather confused at this moment. Shots definitely were fired at the presidential motorcade as it passed through downtown Dallas. Then one moment, and then two more shots in rapid succession. I heard over the radio system, let's get out of here. An ISS man who was with us, Ruth Youngblood, I believe it was, vaulted over the front seat on top of Lyndon, threw him to the floor and said, get down. In fact, nearly eight months later, when the Warren Commission is investigating the assassination, this is what she submits for her official testimony. The cars accelerated terrifically fast, faster and faster. I cast one last look back over my shoulder, saw a bundle of pink, just like a, a drift blossom lying in the back seat. I, I think it was Mrs. Kennedy lying over the president's body. Where does this instinct to capture it all even come from, starting now and for the next five years? Maybe she has an eye on legacy. Lady Bird had studied history and journalism at the University of Texas and kept small spiral notebooks with her all the time. So as the moment unfolds around her, her instinct is to commit it to record. They led us to the right, to the left, onward into a quiet room in the hospital. Suddenly, I found myself face to face with Jackie in a small hall. I don't think I ever saw anybody so much alone in my life. 89 minutes after JFK is declared dead, they're on the tarmac waiting to take off for Washington. LBJ and Ladybird, some staff, a few reporters. A White House spokesman has just announced that at 2.39 this afternoon, Federal Judge Sarah T. Hughes of Dallas swore in Lyndon Johnson as President of the United States. Judge Hughes, who was herself appointed by President John Kennedy, was crying as she performed the ceremony. You've probably seen the photo. Ladybird on his right, Jackie on his left, one hand on the Bible, the other in the air. Now, suddenly, LBJ is president and Lady Bird is first lady. I went in to see Mrs. Kennedy. Oh, it was a very, very hard thing to do. She made it as easy as possible. She said things like, Oh, Lady Bird, 
We've liked you too, so much. Jackie had leaned on Lady Bird to show up for her for years, on the campaign trail, to stand in for public events, a million and one ceremonial things, and she'd loved her for it. Now, Lady Bird has a sense of Jackie's complicated emotions. She hadn't even really wanted to come to Texas with Jack. She said, oh, what if I had not been there? I am so glad I was there. Mrs. Kennedy's dress was stained with blood. One leg was almost entirely covered with it. And her right glove was caked, that immaculate woman. She always wore gloves like she was used to them. I never could. And that was somehow one of the most poignant sights exquisitely dressed and caked in blood. I asked her if I couldn't get somebody to come in to help her change. And she says, oh no, that's all right, perhaps later. And then with something, if with a person that gentle, that dignified, you can say had an element of fierceness, she said, I want them to see what they have done to Jack. It's 6 p.m., already dark. NBC's Bob Abernathy delivers a play-by-play to a stunned nation. Several thousand people waiting for the president to arrive at Andrews Air Force Base. Here is the plane now. Made the flight back from Dallas. This tragedy. Minutes after they land, JFK's younger brother, Bobby, hurries onto the plane to get his sister-in-law out of there. He leads Jackie out, her pink suit splattered in blood. Now they see what they have done to Jack. The new president and first lady wait for Bobby and Jackie to leave before they walk off the plane to the tarmac. The photos show them side by side, standing in front of a small press corps. They look stunned. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. I ask for your help and God's. Lady Bird and her press secretary, Liz Carpenter, take the 20-minute drive to the Elms, the Johnson's Place in Spring Valley, a leafy, wealthy enclave in Northwest Washington. The weight of Dallas and its consequences it all starts to sink in. Liz is a fellow Texan, a journalist, and a veteran of the Johnson's Texas in Washington inner circle. She understands how the rest of the country will see this violence. It's a terrible thing to say, Liz says to Lady Bird, but the salvation of Texas is that the governor was hit. Texas Governor John Connolly was at that moment in Parkland Hospital in Dallas, recovering from four hours of surgery, smashed ribs, a punctured lung, shattered wrist, a bullet lodged behind his knee. But Lady Bird gets what Liz means. Texas is complicated. On the campaign trail in 1960, Bird had faced the so-called mink coat mob, a group of ultra-conservative women in Dallas who were convinced Johnson had betrayed his state by joining the Kennedy ticket. 
the women staged a protest outside Lady Bird's hotel, carrying placards that read, LBJ sold out to Yankee socialists and let's ground Lady Bird. When Bird emerged, they literally spat on her, grabbed her gloves and threw them in the gutter. Ironically, this conservative rash helped LBJ politically. For a Texan, he seemed downright liberal. So as they drive to the Elms that night, Lady Bird has to agree with Liz about Governor Connolly. Don't think I haven't thought of that, she says. I only wish it could have been me. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Lady Bird and Jackie had known each other for almost a decade at this point, since the Kennedys moved into Upper Crust Georgetown after their wedding in 1953. Ike and Mamie Eisenhower occupied the White House. Washington in the 1950s went to bed early. At first, their lives didn't really intersect. Jackie took classes and worked part-time as a society photographer for a local paper. Lady Bird lived in the less Tony neighborhood of Forest Hills. She wasn't part of the Georgetown set, but she had political status, especially once Lyndon became majority leader. So when she reached out to Jackie for Senate spouse events, Jackie showed up, even if it wasn't exactly her scene. I'm particularly interested in her because she was so young and pretty. And uh, I remember her big eyes. I felt, and I expect a lot of us felt, sort of like, here's a bird of beautiful plumage, and uh, all of us little gray wrens. <laughs> There's a cliche in Washington that every one of the 100 members of the Senate is just waiting to run for president. As early as the mid-50s, Joe Kennedy had those ambitions for his son Jack, who'd just been elected to the Senate. Joe thought there might be an interesting opportunity with LBJ, the new Senate majority leader. So the Kennedys floated the idea that if Johnson ran for president in 56, Jack might be his pick for VP. But LBJ wasn't game. He felt it would be like Kennedy skipping a grade without doing the work. As the majority leader, LBJ knew all about power in the Senate, but he's insecure about his ability to convert that clout into a national profile. And by 1960, things had evolved. Kennedy's star was rising. 
he's running for president. And at the convention in LA, he quickly moved past his more seasoned rivals, including LBJ, who lost in the first round of balloting. Kennedy talked with the delegates about his fast ascent, and he was nothing but gracious toward Lyndon Johnson. I have uh, found it extremely beneficial serving in the Senate, Senator Johnson as leader. I think if I emerge as successfully in this convention, it will be the result of watching Senator Johnson proceed around the Senate for the last eight years. The Kennedys knew LBJ could help them with Texas. So Jack went to see the Johnsons at their hotel to see if LBJ would swallow his pride, give up his prime place in the Senate, and help JFK take the White House in exchange for the worst job in American government, vice president. For both the Johnsons, it was a crushing moment. It was sort of like trying to swallow a nettle. Hurt, thicky, spiny. He didn't want the job, but he felt an enormous sense of obligation to the Democratic Party. With Jack now the nominee, the Kennedy and Johnson teams gathered at the Kennedy compound in Hyannis to plan the fall campaign. Jackie, talking with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in 64, remembered how she and Jack still sort of deferred to LBJ, or at least went out of their way to make him and Lady Bird comfortable. So when uh, Lyndon Johnson came after the convention to our house at the Cape, we moved out of our bedroom. It was a very small house there so that he and Lady Bird could have that room. We were sort of sleeping in a single bed in this tiny little guest room. It's Boston meets Austin, Camelot meets Cornpone, crowded together in the family living room. Lyndon took off his 10-gallon hat and plopped it on top of a floor lamp, even had the audacity, as Jackie saw it, to sit in the patriarch Joe Kennedy's chair. Lady Bird sat on a couch together with Jackie and her sisters-in-law, chatting. But Jackie noticed that, at the same time, she was following LBJ's conversation across the room, taking notes into a spiral notebook. Jackie, again talking to Schlesinger, couldn't really relate to Ladybird's approach to being a political wife. And uh, anytime Lyndon would talk that night, Ladybird would get out a little notebook. I've never seen a husband and a wife, so she was sort of like a trained hunting dog. I mean, she had every name, phone number. It was a, ooh, a sort of a funny kind of way of operating. She's definitely not a trained hunting dog. And she wasn't taking dictation either, if that's what Jackie imagined Ladybird was doing. She was a full-fledged member of the Johnson team. When the campaign picked up in the fall, Jackie stayed home, very pregnant and prone to miscarriages. Ladybird racked up 35,000 miles in 11 states as LBJ's surrogate and Jackie's. The Kennedy sisters and their mother Rose were often with her. The Paris News, that's Paris, Texas, reported, expectantly, the 2,000 women crowding the hotel ballroom fell silent. Due to the popularity of Mrs. Lyndon B. Johnson, pronounced the hostess, we've temporarily run out of petty fours. When it's done and the Kennedys were on their way to the White House, Bobby credited Lady Bird for winning them Texas. That funny kind of way of operating ended up being pretty effective. Before she left Hyannis that July, Lady Bird had given Jackie some advice. If you can't campaign, invite the press into your home. And maybe Lady Bird's suggestion had planted a seed. In 1962, CBS News produces a tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy. 
It airs on all three networks. Before Mrs. Kennedy meets us and guides us through the White House, here with her personal narrative of the early days of the president's house. It's billed as the first time the American public got an inside look at how the president's family lived in the White House. Shows that the original design of the building included an extra floor. But it wasn't really about family. Jackie was too private for that. It was about the antiques and art and china and decor that was Jackie's great project. The most interesting are the pair of chairs by the desk. Not many people know that Mrs. Lincoln sold a lot of furniture after her husband's death because she was destitute. Those chairs are way before Lincoln, either Van Buren or Tyler. On Valentine's Day, 1962, over 46 million people tuned in to the special in primetime, a smashing success. It ignited the kind of fervor that the British feel for their royalty. Jackie won an Emmy for it, and it was Lady Bird who went to Los Angeles to accept the award on the First Lady's behalf. Saturday, November 23rd. This is the day President lay in state at the White House. It was a gray day, fitting the occasion. The assassination in Dallas was just a day ago. Newspapers run special editions, and television coverage saturates the airwaves. Dawn crept up grimly over Washington Saturday. The air, chill and damp, and from time to time, rain fell like teardrops from the gray, forbidding skies. The nation slowly awoke to the realization that John F. Kennedy was gone forever. At his home in the Spring Valley section of Northeast Washington, Lyndon Baines Johnson rose early to begin his first full day as President of the United States of America. His heart heavy laden, he took over the business of government. The Johnsons joined the Kennedy family, cabinet members, Supreme Court justices, and White House staff in the green room of the White House. Black crepe covers the chandelier. When we march past President's body in the East Room, there was a catafalque in the center of the room, and on it, a casket draped with the American flag. This is just the fourth time an assassination has led to this kind of presidential transition. Lincoln, Garfield, McKinley, now Kennedy. There was some little Catholic image at one end that I was so, so reminded, so caught up in the thought that the Catholics have a pattern for everything, a pattern for living, and a pattern for dying. There's a short service at St. John's Episcopal across from Lafayette Square. Then, Lady Bird leaves LBJ at the old executive office building and goes back to the Elms. I just sort of collapsed. But not for long. A million and one things you have to do with the simple business of going on living if you're one of the ones that's going on living. She has to sell their home, decide what to move to the White House, and what to put in storage. And she has to manage her business. 20 years earlier, Lady Bird had used some family money to buy KTBC, a nearly bankrupt radio station in Austin, then acquired KTBC-TV. She'd built it into a powerful media company. So to avoid suggestions of impropriety, Lady Bird decides to put her stock in trust, maybe even sell the business. Sunday, November 24th. This was the day the president lay in state in the Capitol. 
the Johnsons wait in the green room for the Kennedy family to arrive. As they came in, Mrs. Shriver turned to me and said, I hear Oswald has been killed. While the Johnsons were at St. Mark's Church that morning, nightclub owner Jacob Rubenstein, you might know him as Jack Ruby, shot Lee Harvey Oswald, who'd been arrested for the assassination, point blank in a Dallas police station. Murder on live TV, reported in real time by news outlets around the country. There is a prisoner. Do you have anything to say in your defense? There is a shot. Oswald has been shot. A shot rang off. Mass confusion here. All the doors have been locked. Holy mackerel. Lee Harvey Oswald is dead, dead of an assassin's bullet himself. The White House protocol staff tells the Johnsons that they'll be riding to the Capitol in a limousine with Jackie, Caroline and John John, and also Bobby. These days are full of forced intimacy. As soon as we emerged from the gates of the White House, first thing I was aware of was that sea of faces stretching away on every side. Silent, watching faces. I wanted to cry for them and with them, but it was impossible to commit the catharsis of tears. Inside the limousine, they are all pretty much silent. Sitting on a jump seat next to Bobby, Lady Bird watches for some window into his pain. He has a granite-like sort of a face, and there was a, a flinching of the jaw. Well, it made your soul flinch for him. Bobby had made it no secret that he objected to JFK's decision to put Lyndon on the ticket in 1960. Ever since, the LBJ-RFK relationship is shaped by suspicion and contempt. But today, awash in empathy, Lady Bird gives Bobby the benefit of the doubt. You've probably seen these images, Jackie in her black veil, kneeling in front of the casket. John John saluting, the riderless horse walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. In the film footage, you catch a glimpse of LBJ and Lady Bird, always a few paces behind Jackie and her children. Lady Bird's feeling for Jackie is especially poignant, and it's got some layers to it. Mrs. Kennedy achieved on this desperate day something that she had not ever quite achieved in the years she'd been in the White House. That is, uh, a state of love, a state of rapport between her and the people of the country. We tend to think of the Kennedys as having sprinkled some kind of magical fairy dust on the American people, all of them. But Lady Bird, raised in East Texas, spat on in the streets of Dallas, knows a different America, one not so enchanted, maybe even turned off by the high culture the Kennedys brought to the White House. To Lady Bird, Jackie's communion with the American people over the death of JFK made her relatable, accessible, lovable. Maybe it's a combination of great breeding, great discipline, great character. I only know it's great. This is some of Jackie Kennedy's letter to Lyndon Johnson, written four days after JFK is killed. November 26th, Tuesday. Dear Mr. President, thank you for walking yesterday behind Jack. You did not have to do that. I'm sure many people forbid you to take such a risk, but you did it anyway. 
I always thought the greatest act of a gentleman that I had seen on this earth was how you, the majority leader when he came to the Senate as just another little freshman who looked up to you and took orders from you, could then serve as vice president to a man who had served under you and been taught by you. I always thought way before the nomination that Lady Bird should be First Lady, but I don't need to tell you here what I think of her qualities, her extraordinary grace of character, her willingness to assume every burden. She assumed so many for me, and I love her very much. It mustn't be very much help to you on your first day in office to hear children on the lawn at recess. It is just one more example of your kindness that you let them stay. I promise they will be gone soon. Thank you, Mr. President. Respectfully, Jackie. Lady Bird arrives at the White House to see Jackie at three on Tuesday afternoon, four days since Dallas. She describes it as the housekeeping details which any woman moving out would talk over with any woman moving in. Not quite. Everything about it, the place, the circumstances, the history between them is so charged. They meet in the West Hall, the name for a sitting room in the family's private quarters. Lady Bird found Jackie utterly composed and radiating that peculiar sort of uh, aliveness and charm and warmth that has, well, she's quite an indescribable fresh flower, but I won't try to describe her then, except that there's a great element of steel and stamina somewhere within her. These two women were different in so many ways age and upbringing, experience and culture. But they had a lot in common, too. Both struggled to become pregnant, keep their pregnancies. They had philandering husbands and had to find ways to preserve their marriages to wildly ambitious men. And all of it in public. She went on to say a lot of things, like, don't be frightened of this house. Some of the happiest years of my marriage have been spent here. You will be happy here. She repeated that over and over as though she were trying to reassure me. They walk through the private quarters so Lady Bird can decide which of her two daughters will take Caroline and John John's bedrooms. Jackie tells her about the White House chef. She told me that the French chef was absolutely divine, although everything he did was very rich. Jack never likes those rich things that he does. Neither one of us noticed the present tense. They come to the yellow room, hung with Cezanne's. But amidst the brightness and beauty, another reminder of why they were there that day. And there on the table were the black boots, the boots that were on the riderless horse in the funeral procession. And there was the flag folded. Lady Bird won't say a word to you. We're just eating lunch here. And, uh in my office, and uh, I haven't had a chance to call you before now. LBJ and Lady Bird know they have a short window of goodwill to establish the right narrative, where Lyndon is someone who can unify the country. They work the phones together, calling media execs at every network. Here, they call Frank Stanton, the president of CBS. Uh, Dr. Sand, one of the jobs we're doing is racking our brains for the smart people that we personally know and feel close to you. And, uh, well, you're sure one, and, uh, and, and I, hope, I hope that doesn't scare you, but uh, we're going to need you. 
The Johnsons move into the White House on December 6, 1963, and Lady Bird goes out of her way to praise Jackie to the American public. Today, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy leaves the White House and leaves in it her shining gift of beauty. We know her better than ever before and hold her close to our hearts with inexpressible pride. Lady Bird turns 52 years old on the 22nd. The official period of mourning ends the next day. In the White House, the black crepe comes down, Christmas decorations replace it. The new president and first lady fly to the LBJ ranch to ring in the new year. Just down the road, Stonewall High School gymnasium is hung with bunting that says Bill Komen, decorated with bales of hay, a saddle, and a lasso. American and German flags are hung around the room. It's the first high-profile diplomatic event in their four-week-old presidency, a masterful display of high-low culture. Holiday time at the Johnsons. The president plays host to the press as they await the arrival of Chancellor Ludwig Erhardt of Germany. Mr. Earhart is the first foreign chief of state to be received officially by the president since he assumed office. Noted pianist Van Cliburn heads an entertainment program that includes Deep in the Heart of Texas, sung in German. An old-fashioned barbecue strikes the note of informality that marks the entire visit of the chancellor. I steered the chancellor into the chow We loaded our plates heavily, and we laid to the barbecue, beans, and the really delicious ribs, and plenty of beer. Camelot? No. But the press covering the Johnson's Hill Country extravaganza gives them rave reviews. The New York Times calls it a new and relaxed kind of welcome from a chief executive. The Washington Post calls it what it is. Barbecue diplomacy. It is a new era. Coming up this season on In Plain Sight. I do believe before the day was over, he did ask me to marry him, and I thought he was just out of his mind. From Lyndon and Lady Bird's early days to their historic victory in a landslide election. My fellow Americans, this is a night of high excitement, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But there are warning signs, even from the start. There was no sense of elation as we walked in the door, fresh home from a victory of over 61%. Lyndon and Lady Bird face a country divided by the struggle for civil rights. Do you think you're going to continue to be pushed around by white men? No, I don't. Because the Negroes are stepping up, they're waking up, and they're going to do something about what the white man did. Chicago's west side is a patchwork of violence at this hour. We hear it's a day of tension and strain. Quiet little Selma, Alabama, dominating the news. The marchers are now backed up over the bridge. James Foreman, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. A presidency more and more defined by an unpopular war. What do you think about this Vietnam thing? It's the damn worst mess I ever saw. It left me thinking we might have a small war on our hands. In an era marked by tragedy. The news of Dr. King's assassination sent shockwaves through the Negro ghettos and colleges across the nation. There are countless reports of windows... And a president consumed by doubt. He wants to get out. There is no way out. That's coming up this season on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. 
Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's archival producer. Associate producers for archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe with help from Lindsay Cradwell and mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. Jacqueline Kennedy's letter to Lyndon Johnson was read by Allison Pill. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshishku at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.